Both Barley and Niffler need high-powered dog food to help them out in the field. Whenever I live somewhere with refrigeration, I love feeding them Nom Nom Now. Niffler can be a slow and picky eater, and he actually dances and whines when he knows Nom Nom Now is coming out of the fridge, and then licks the bowl clean. Nom Nom's food is full of fresh proteins that your dog loves, and the vitamins and nutrients they need to thrive. You can actually see proteins in vegetables like beef, chicken, pork, peas, carrots, kale, and more. When you sign up for Nom Nom Now, you share information on your dog's age, breed, weight, allergies, food preferences, and, importantly, their activity level. Then they'll tailor specially made blends and serving sizes to your dogs, which are delivered in a huge, exciting refrigerated box. If you're ready to make the switch to fresh, you can order Nom Nom Now today by going to zen.ai slash canine conservationists one and use the offer code canine conservationists all one word to get 50 percent off your first order plus free shipping so again that is zen.ai slash canine conservationists number one and use the offer code canine conservationists at checkout you'll get 50 percent off and of course nom nom comes with a money money back guarantee if your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. Hello and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, canine welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm Kayla Fratt, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I am really excited to be talking about all things snake bite, snake, uh, snake bite care, prevention, with Nicholas Brandehoff from the Asclepius Snakebite Foundation. Um, so, Nick, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so why don't we just go ahead and dive right into it as far as, I think, when I think snakebite prevention and treatment, the first thing I want to be thinking about are what are the highest risks for the snake bites, you know, as far as behavioral risks of what the dog is doing, what the human is doing, and what the snake is doing. I know that can probably be an entire seminar topic, but relatively briefly. Yeah, I think, I mean, the highest risk things that people do is, is get out into the field, right? And so the vast majority of people interact with snakes sort of at the, the city, city limits, sort of butting up against usually open area. Um, but when you get into people, probably like people listening to this podcast where you get out into the field off trail, um, those are the highest risk scenarios, um, just cause snakes don't like to be where people are, but they will sort of butt up against, um, that habitat. Mm -hmm. Um, and especially, you know, people going through high grass, through dense vegetation, things where they can't see their feet very well, um, would be for people. And then for dogs, I mean, dogs just going sort of everywhere, trailing or looking around, putting their, their face in everything um, is sort of the time when they're going to get bitten. Yeah. Yeah. So do you do you see that most snake bites actually come from dogs that are intentionally interacting with snakes or more coming into contact with the snakes accidentally um, through like playing fetch and running over a snake or something like that? No, it's usually a dog being inquisitive. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's usually a dog moving around. Um, you know, it's usually not in the setting of throwing the Frisbee or something like that, where the dog isn't, is very focused on the Frisbee or the ball or sort of what their mm -hmm. objective is. It's usually the dog is sort of muddling around, having a little bit of free time, putting their nose around everything because they smell that snake scent. It's a foreign thing to them usually. Um, and so they're, they're sort of being like, oh, what's this? And then they sort of get tagged. And the majority of dogs get bit on the, the face, but some of them can get bit on the um, legs as well. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And I suppose knowing where they're bitten tells us a little bit about what they were doing at the time. Um, so, you know, we were talking before recording. I think this podcast is going to be pretty focused on you know, the Americas and then Africa. So we're going to be trying to track down someone different to talk to for Australia because there's some special considerations with all of the snakes there. So maybe for um, 
you know, North America, North South America, and then Africa. Can you break down some of the the, the definition or uh, the distinctions between snake groups that we might need to be aware of? Um, again, I know every single question I'm asking you today could be an entire seminar on its own. Yeah, I think I think when you break down at least venomous snakes, well, snakes in general, so you break them down into basically three categories. There's some nuances there, but basically the colubrids, which is the vast majority of snakes, um, vast majority of non-venomous snakes. Um, so you think bull snakes, you think garter snakes, you think um, sort of your other um, water snakes that people might run into in North mm-hmm. America, for example. Um, and then you sort of get into your venomous populations, which is your vipers, Um or Viperidae, which would, in North America would be sort of your rattlesnakes, your your cottonmouths, your copperheads. Um, in Africa, your you know your puff adders, your soft-scaled vipers, things of that nature. Um, and then you think of you break them down into the third category, which is your lapids. So those are usually your in North America that's your coral snake. Um, mm-hmm. In South America, your coral snakes um, and a couple others. And then in Africa, that, that's where you get into the cobras, the mambas, things of that nature. They tend to be neurotoxic, where, where the vipers tend to be more sort of um, uh, cause bleeding and local damage, but th- mm. there's a lot of overlap there, so don't those aren't finite categories. Sure. Okay, yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I imagine that part of the reason we're bothering to break this down is because there's differences in what you as a handler in the field may want to do based on who has bitten your dog. So if you, I suppose, have the fortune of seeing what has bitten your dog, um, what are some of the things that you should be doing as you're working on getting your dog to the vet? Well, I think <clears throat> I think breaking it down by probably geographic region is the easiest because mm-hmm. the vast sure. majority of envenomations that occur in North America or the U.S. are by your vipers. I mean, for, mm-hmm. especially for dogs, um, it's, it's usually vipers, 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 unless you're sort of in the Florida area, maybe Texas, where you might catch a coral snake bite. Um, but really it's, um, they're usually bitten on the muzzle in some way, the nose. And so it's really, a, a get to an emergency veterinarian as soon as possible. Um, mm-hmm. largely because if you're bitten on the face, imagine yourself getting bitten on the face by a rattlesnake. If you get any sort of swelling in that area, that swelling can come can compromise the airway system. And so you want somebody, if they need to be intubated or have sort of mm-hmm. that sort of care, um, they need to be to the hospital immediately. So if you can carry out your dog, um, I know a lot of people uh, who do this work sometimes get smaller dogs in order to be able to carry them out in an emergency. Yep. But, you know, you get into your larger dogs. Um, that can be a, you know, if you're 10 miles in and got to hike out your 100-pound German Shepherd, you may be um, hoofing a little bit. Um, but getting them to care as soon as possible so that they can get anti-venom um, if, if it's available. There's no real proven pre-hospital care that, you know, mm-hmm. improves outcome. So I hear, a lot, uh, I hear a lot of talk about using Benadryl as a treatment um, that does not work. It does not stop the swelling. The pathway for the swelling from the snake bite is very different from the pathway that Benadryl inhibits. Um I hear a lot about steroids, same thing, to decrease the swelling. It does not decrease the swelling in a snake bite scenario. Um, you know, you could potentially maybe give um, IV fluids or, or sort of uh, subcutaneous fluids if the dog sort of has a little blood pressure or things like that. There's no proven pre-hospital treatment. It's really just get to the dog get to care there. as soon as, yeah, mm-hmm. as soon as possible. That's really all you got. And to be blunt, that's all we got for human care as well. So, you know, there's people yeah. working on pre-hospital stuff, but, uh, but for humans, dogs, horses, cats, whoever, it's just get to care as soon as possible. Yeah. Just get them to that anti-venom. Yeah. That's uh, when we were, we got a little bit snake crazy and I should have done this podcast before this field deployment, but we did um, two weeks of field work in really remote Guatemala, where I think we were about six hours from our car for um, several days on end. And then let alone how far the car was from a hospital, we were probably 10 hours from the nearest veterinary hospital. And um, I got lucky when um, I spoke to a veterinarian in Costa Rica about this, they actually sold me antivenom 
Uh, so mm. I was able to have anti-venom with me, which I was pretty nervous about because the whole package was in Spanish and I'm fluent, but, you know, I'm reading the instructions over and over and over and trying to memorize them and not feeling super qualified to actually administer anti-venom were something to happen and we didn't need to. Um, but, you know, we were lucky enough that that was something that was available to us in Latin America to at least carry that on us. Um, again, I was the sort of thing that I was not super psyched about having to figure out if it happened. Yeah. And the reality is, you know, there's antivenoms are specific to certain snakes. And so it mm-hmm. really depends on which antivenoms you have. Some of them are what we call polyvalent, which cover multiple species, but some of them are monovalent and only cover one. When uh-huh. you're working in an area that like is more um, ecologically diverse, like Latin America or Africa, there are lots of snakes that aren't covered by the antivenom that may yeah. be causing injury. And so it gets a little difficult. Um, in North America, we're more lucky in that we have antivenom that sort of covers the vast, vast majority of bites. And we do have coral snake antivenom as well for dogs. Um, mm. University of Florida yeah. is like a pro pro at treating coral snake envenomations um, in That's dog bites. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, I mean, the reality as well is that most, most people don't see what injured their dog. It's usually the yeah. dog came back, you know, some whimpering or has some pain or some swelling or something is going on. And it's really hard to parse out. Was it a, you know, was it a snake bite? Was it one of a thousand other things that the dog could have encountered in the field? Did the dog put its face in a hornet's nest? Like it's really hard to tell sometimes. Yeah. That's something I think you and I got connected through that national veterinary snake bite support group on Facebook. And it seems like one of the most common questions is people posting photos of injuries and swelling on their dogs and not knowing for sure whether or not it's a snake bite and not knowing what the next step is. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. So, um, you know, again, knowing now that there's just not much we can do beyond just trying to get the dog to the vet as soon as possible, what should people expect in the case of a snake bite uh, as as that's actually happening for them and their dog? I think so. The expectation would be they're going to continue to swell. They might have some local bleeding and by a viper bite. Um, you know, they're going to be in a lot of pain. Um, and that is only going to continue to get worse until they get the treatment, mm-hmm. um, involved. Now, a lot of, a lot of dogs do quite well with snake bites. Um, there, there is this fallacy though, that dogs, um, do better than humans do from snake bites. It's, I don't think that's actually true. Um, I think dogs are just better at hiding pain than we are, to be blunt. Um, especially yeah. working dogs. When you get into the working dog class, like I, I have a Dutch Shepherd Malinois mix. Like she could care less about mm-hmm. uh, anything um, as long as she's doing what she wants to be doing. <laughs> yeah, and I think dogs are the same way. Um, and so I think you know you're going to expect swelling, pain. Um, they might be a little bit more sort of tired and not and not working through what they want to be doing. Um, and maybe a little bit of bleeding. Now, if they get bit by a neurotoxic snake, like a coral snake or a mamba or cobra, um, they may not show any signs other than sort of, um, weakness. And so that weakness will usually start sort of more in the facial area, limbs a little bit sometimes, but then progress to the respiratory. So they might be breathing a little bit faster, might be panting a little bit, um, and so that, and then they get more shut, they get faster respirations, but shallower breathing and then can progress their sort of respiratory paralysis and not being able to breathe fully. That's where like putting them on a breathing machine is going to be beneficial for them. Right. Um, yeah. Whereas a Viper, they might get put on a breathing machine, but only to sort of get past that swelling, if you will, um, and make gotcha. sure that swelling resolves before they can, they take the breathing tube out. Those are pretty drastic measures and being in an, being in a place where they have that ability. Um, usually you're talking about a university vet setting, um, or, um, you know, a more advanced emergency vet setting. Um, you know, we're lucky in the U S that we have all these places. Um, but I can, I can assume in Latin America, these places are minimal. I can tell you working in West Africa, um, for snake bite care, 
in humans that uh, <laughs> having even care for humans that it's this advance is, is incredibly minimal. Um, and yeah. so I'm not sure sort of what their dog capacity would be. Um, and so, you know, if, if there's a group that's working, for example, in Guinea, where we have a clinic um, for a working dog, you know, they may need to go to a human place and <laughs> that human place to, to do that for a dog is probably a heavy undertaking. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, I can imagine. I know uh, we didn't necessarily look into where the nearest, you know, places that could intubate a dog were for us in Guatemala, but my dog had, um, we ended up being so worried about um, snakes and then he got uh, tick-borne diseases and got was, ended up para- paralyzed from two different tick-borne infections at the same time. And uh, when we were, when we were trying to troubleshoot that whole thing, we were speaking to a veterinarian in El Salvador and they were like, yeah, so the nearest, the nearest MRI is going to be in Guatemala city for you, which is actually only like a six or seven hour drive away. So it wasn't terrible. Um, But they're like, you know, do you want us to call and get that scheduled for you? And we ended up having some other options and it turned out to not be necessary, but yeah, you know, I was actually surprised it was as close as Guatemala City. Um. Yeah, I mean, we even in in Guinea at our clinic for humans, our average transport times eight hours, right? So, yeah. um, for dogs, it's I, I don't even know if it's a possibility unless you already have a system in place. Yeah. Um, for that, so if you're working, if you're a handler in those regions. You know, knowing people having a having an exit strategy for whatever reason is would be an important thing. Is putting, um, putting that into, um, yeah, putting putting that into motion can be a very heavy undertaking there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and especially again because there's just not much you can do until you get there. So it sounds like in most cases, then it would be once you get to the veterinarian, you're hoping that they've got an appropriate anti venom. Uh, for what's going on, and then it's kind of breathing support. Are there any other things that you can expect? Um, I'm sure survivability varies quite a lot, but people would probably love to know, you know, what what can we be expecting as far as timelines and likelihood of survival? I think that's heavily dependent on the snake. I think it's heavily dependent yeah. on the size of your dog. Um, I think it's heavily dependent on the nutritional status of your dog. Now I'm assuming mm. most people for this podcast would be, you know, they're working dogs and so they're well cared for. Um, but, um, I think, I think it just depends on a multitude of factors, you know, a, a 20 pound terrier versus a 140 pound Pyrenees is going to be sort of a different, um, survivability rate based on totally, the same yeah. strike. Um, and, you know, it also depends on how much venom got injected. You know, snakes can meter their venom um, and, and sort of control how much they inject. And so um, there's a multitude of factors there. Um, I would say, you know, you get into your more toxic neurotoxic snakes like cobra or a mamba bite in West Africa is probably a lot less survivability um, than, say, um, a copperhead bite in the U.S. Um, gotcha. And so it just it just varies so much based on who um, who has it, what's going on, and and where what location you're in. Yeah. Does do you see correlations as far as time to the veterinarian being really important, or is it a little bit more predetermined based on the dog and the bite? No, I think the so this is the same for. All, everything being bitten, the faster you can get care, the better your outcome is going to be. Yeah, we know this because you know antivenom doesn't necessarily reverse what is the damage that has already occurred if there's damage being done to local tissue, or um, but it does stop that progression. So the sooner you can get there, so that the antivenom can be administered and be and neutralize the venom, then the better things will be. Now it may in some scenarios, depending on the snake. For like neurotoxic bites that cause paralysis, it may reverse that paralysis. Um, uh, it may not, depending on the mechanism of the venom and how it's working. Um, and that varies. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's really, really interesting. I, 
There was a period of time back when I was an undergrad that I got really interested in a lot of these venom questions. And had I been better at biochemistry, I think this was one of those things that I would have really enjoyed going into because um, it's just so fascinating. I mean, the the different mechanisms and just how varied it can be is is really it's really wild. So, um, okay. I know some people are going to be wondering about the rattlesnake vaccine. Um, I know I have not made the jump for it because I've not seen any data behind it, but what, uh, what has your, you know, hands-on experience been with the vaccine? So I'm not a vet. I'm a human toxicologist Mm -hmm. and snake bite doc, but I, you know, I work with a lot of vets and, and know the research quite well. There's uh-huh. been no proven data showing benefit from the rattlesnake vaccine. I know that it's marketed yeah. to sort of um, increase your time to um, to get to the vet uh, and things of that nature. No data supporting that that assertion. Um, and the, the 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 immunology part and the biochemistry part doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, for the mechanism, and so not having a plausible mechanism, not having the data, anything like that, I don't agree that yeah. the rattlesnake vaccine how, is useful. How does it get approved if it doesn't have that sort of? Um, and that that might not be a question for someone like you. That might be more of a rhetorical question, but it seems like they should yeah, have to have I, some amount of proof if they're going to be marketing something as consequential as a vaccine. They have, so they have, um, they have minimal proof in mouse modeling Uh for Western diamondback venom, which is the venom they use to do the immunization. Now you're going to get into a lot of complications there because the venoms from even just a single species. So Western diamondbacks have a very broad range from Southern California through Texas. Um, and up through Oklahoma, um, the venoms vary based on the different specific geographic populations. And then when you start getting into different species of snakes, um, you know, Mojave rattlesnakes and, and prairie rattlesnakes and all the different rattlesnakes, their venom composition is different as well. And so you're going to get, um, you're going to get a lot of variation in that venom. Uh, and so the idea of being able to be immunized against all those variations is just not accurate. Um, yeah. And then the approval, pr- the reason the approval process is there's a much lower standard for animals than there are for humans, basically. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, and so yeah, we don't have enough. If it doesn't show any months. harm, yeah. If it doesn't show, if it doesn't show any harm, then it's probably okay. But it doesn't show any benefit as well. So why? Yeah. Why do it? Um, you know, I think I think it gives people peace of mind as if they are doing something. Yeah. It's kind of that placebo effect, but there's no benefit that's been that's been shown to be proven. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's. I see where that comes from, and I've I, you know I I haven't I'm not going to say I haven't considered it um, because you know especially when you start learning like okay tourniquets. And, you know, everything that you hear about as these old wives tales of what to do with snake bites are not advised. And you just start feeling like, God, I just want something to feel like I've, I'm helping my dog. And we've got another episode that'll be coming out a little bit before this one on, you know, avoidance training and trying to figure out how to help our dogs not, um, not encounter these snakes and understand that they need to avoid them. And, you know, depending on the methodologies, results are really mixed there too. So it's just hard because we want to be keeping our dogs safe. There's just not much that we can uh, we can do beyond you know. And we've I think we've covered this well enough in the show, but people can let me know if they want a separate episode. You know, other than doing all the research we can about who's out there and what their habits are and how can we set up our surveys so that we're minimizing the likelihood of running into these snakes and then just that's kind of all we can do. Yeah. Like. I think, you know, I've, I've done avoidance training with my dog and I've worked with some really good avoidance trainers, but I've also seen some really bad ones. I think that's yeah. probably where the mixed, um, the mixed, uh, efficacy comes from. So if you're going to do avoidance training, I highly recommend getting a good recommendation for one rather than 
Um, like I did, I did mine in initially in California with my dog who was briefly, we were working towards SAR training and, um, uh, my schedule was just too busy to continue it. Yeah. But then we moved to Colorado and I was like, Oh, I need to sort of re up her voyage training. So I just went to one of the courses and I'll be, I was so incredibly upset with the methods and how they were doing it. And they clearly, um, uh, are used to working with honey dogs, which tend to be uh, a very different class than working with um, uh, a Malinois class, which, you know, they're not better or worse. They're just different sort of approaches. And so having yeah. somebody that can tailor that approach um, is important, I think. Um, but but we want to do something. We want to do something for our dogs, for our kids, for all sorts of stuff. This is why snake bite kits are sold in REI still, suction devices, all that stuff. None of them work. A lot of them cause just more harm, but they continue to be sold by the millions every year because people want something in their backpack to show. This is why the Benadryl thing makes its rounds constantly mm-hmm. through social media. God, that would be nice if it was true. It would be fantastic. <laughs> I, I, it always baffles me when people are like, you don't know, you know, you're in with pharma and all these things and you're like like no like i want i would love to have something yeah that well, even if, if it showed a little bit pharma. of efficacy <laughs> when you yeah, think if you ridiculous. were in with pharma you would be trying to sell the things wouldn't you <laughs> like that well they think they think it's an yeah. anti-venom it's like i'm trying to push oh. anti-venom as this whole soul thing and first of all i want to say i don't get paid for any anti-venom stuff and two is you know what as a physician for humans, why wouldn't I want something that would work? And as an avid hiker yeah. with my dog, why wouldn't I want something that would protect my dog um, or improve my dog's outcome if they did get bit in the field when we're you know eight miles in? It's it's a ridiculous assertion, but it, yeah. there's yeah. it's just we we want something to work. There's nothing that works because we don't have any sort of great pre-hospital care right now. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything to you know? I guess I have heard. You're trying to keep the dog calm, trying to keep them comfortable. You know, I I can't imagine that's the sort of thing that hurts. But no, no, no. And I think it, I think that is one of the things that could be beneficial. We know that you know we know that snake venom travels through lymphatic system, so um, you know your veins your veins have a way. There's a there's a secondary uh, system for for. Um, having fluid return to your heart, so uh-huh. your venous system and then your lymphatic system. Your lymphatic system is great for where it sort of fights stuff, um, viruses and bacteria and stuff like that. Um, and the other way that is that's how venom gets through your system as well. And so there's not a lot of pressure there. So the way that it moves is every time you move your muscles, that little sort of motion squeezes little, those, those lymphatic pipes, if you will. Uh, and move stuff forward. And so theoretically, if you can keep your dog from moving, it would decrease stuff. Now trying to keep a dog from moving is like tr- trying to keep a three-year-old from moving. Yeah. Um, that's really, that's a really hard thing to do. Um, but you know, if your dog gets bit on the leg, for example, if you can splint the leg where they're not bending it a lot, um, oh, interesting. Okay. that might be, that might be a benefit, but you're getting into a lot of MacGyverish type, um, yeah modes at that point especially in the backcountry you have to hike out and you know if, if you're using a a 20 pound terrier again for example that's a lot easier you can throw that dog in your backpack and try to keep them from moving versus you know your big old great pyrenees that i'm not carrying out a 140 pound dog yeah i mean that's part of the reason i you know i run border (laughs) collies uh and part of the reason actually just before we hopped on got an email from another person we get, we get this email like once a month, someone's in over their head with some check line working German shepherd. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's one I'm not, I, I don't want a 90 pound German shepherd. I, 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 it's too, it's too much. Just one more thing that I would have to worry about with that dog. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's one of the reasons, um, that a lot of my colleagues in search and rescue use sort of smaller pocket rocket, uh, mm-hmm. Malinois and Dutch shepherds. Um, in that, in those arenas, because they're great working line dogs, but you can get a good dog at 45 or 50 pounds, mm-hmm. which is more manageable than, you know, there's, there's been this, um, this movement of breeding these much larger Malinois for, for protection work. And, 
you know, it's like, I don't want my dog 60 pounds. I don't want her to be 90 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. Both of my my border collies are on that 45 to 50 range. And I'm, I'm like 130. So even my 50 pound border collie is going to give me a run for my money, carrying them out. If it's going to be more than a couple miles. Um, and we yeah. carry, you know, we've got these like rescue harness things so that you can turn the dog into a backpack. And actually that's one of the things, you know, how concerned are we about collars, harnesses, those sorts of things with swelling? So that, that is a big, so any person bit, take off anything. So I wear a ring and a watch. My ring is rubber so I can rip it off at any point, but anything constricting, especially for dogs, um, you know, your collar, you know, depending on the harness, I guess, depending on what, uh, if it's one of the lower chest harnesses um, that don't sort of go up around the neck area and sort of stay below what would be the dog's collarbone region. Mm-hmm. Um, if you equate that from a human to sort of the dog from an anatomical standpoint, it's probably fine. But anything that's going to cause any constricting around the neck should be taken off. And if you have anything that, so say you have, um, you're using, uh, paw pads or some sort of any paw mm. shoes mm-hmm. that would be something else I would remove um, just because you don't want anything constricting as that swelling progresses in those scenarios yeah yeah that makes that makes sense and that kind of that was one of the first things I was thinking about when you were talking about potentially splinting is oh gosh how would you how would you splint a limb effectively without potentially creating another constriction point well and that's you know that's where people got get a lot into um, the application of crepe wraps, which is what Australia uses for a lot of their snakes in human bites. Um, the reason being is their snakes don't cause swelling the ways that the way that ours do. So if you did a, even if you could do a functional crepe wrap, which most people can't put it on appropriately, um, uh, because you got to sort of reach a very specific threshold of pressure. Um, once that swelling starts, that pressure gets greater and greater, and you might actually do more harm than good at that point. And so, if you, yeah. even if you're going to splint your dog, make sure it's quite loose. Um, you know, basically trying to hold, like keep uh, keep a stick or something, sort of to keep it from bending. But at the same time, don't wrap it tightly. Don't use coban because um, coban is is uh, as you the more wraps you make, the tighter it gets, and yeah. so you can actually cause more harm than good in that scenario as well gotcha yeah that's that's all really good information um and again we're gonna try to get someone to come on and talk to us specifically about australia because uh, our, our Aussies. Australia is always weird with snake bites <laughs> humans dogs everything it's they're, they're yeah. just a unique bunch yeah yeah <laughs> they've got yeah they've got all sorts of things i love that our snakes here some of them have rattles that's uh that's one of my favorite features of our snakes <laughs> Yeah, I hear, you know, I hear this, this is, this is bantered about all the time about um, snakes losing their rattles evolve um, to avoid predators and, and humans and cattle and things like that. And all that's, it's never, that has not been proven. It's very, very controversial when that oh, publication came out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a very um, uh, ethnocentric sort of uh like we love to think that we influence everything going on in the world in as far as agriculture and ecology goes, uh-huh. um, which we do in a lot of ways, right? By, yeah. you know, there's a reason that conservation dogs even exist. Um, right. But the whole like snakes are losing their rattle thing isn't an, isn't an actual proven thing yet. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. I mean, it's funny though. I think about this, you know, like all the rattlesnakes I've seen, I think almost all of them I've been rattled at. Um, but I also don't necessarily know the snakes that I'm missing that didn't have rattles, um, or didn't rattle at me. Um, but again, I always appreciate it. We, we just had our most recent rattlesnake encounter like a week ago and the snake actually didn't rattle at us the first time. Um, we encountered it. Um, my friend was probably a step and a half away from stepping on it and something in that, you know, that back bit of her brain set off and she stopped dead and then realized why she stopped dead. Uh, and the snake didn't rattle at that point. It rattled, you know, as it was moving away later. When you're on the field, you pass about a thousand snakes that you never see. Yeah. Right. People always like, they always remember that one or two times they've run into a snake 
Uh, yeah. And that was like, oh my God, there's snakes in the area. I can promise you if you are a hiker or if you're out in the community away from city life and there's, you know, it's a habitable area for snakes, there are snakes around. Mm-hmm. They love, they use their camouflage uh, before anything else. Um, you know, they don't rattle. Rattlesnakes are great for listening, but they don't rattle until they absolutely have to because they don't want to give away their camouflage. So they're not yeah. rattling 50 yards away. You know, they'll rattle um, right next to you. And honestly, a lot of times in human bites, they'll bite first and then rattle after because you got so close, you're now a threat to them. Uh, and they yeah. are biting you and then they'll rattle, which is kind of, you know, <laughs> frustrating not super <laughs> helpful buddy yeah thanks for having your rattle <laughs> yeah um, every time i've been rattled at i think it's been in the process where i like had the initial startle i backed up i got my dogs mm-hmm. under control and then i'm going in to take a photo um which is <laughs> probably how yeah. a lot of people get bitten as well um i always think i'm being careful but the that's always the thing with res- risk stuff too where it's like i think i'm doing this intelligently but that's just because i haven't been bitten yet yeah and I, I heard a I heard a very interesting presentation um, from a guy out of South Africa um, mm-hmm. working with um, working with dogs, and he was saying that they have attempted um, to use dogs there to try to find puff adders. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, there's a group, you know, there there are some groups in the U.S. that use dogs to try to find rattlesnakes um, and sort of point them out. Um, and they're having some success with that, but they were saying that the puff adders in South Africa, the dogs can't find, um, and oh, they have no idea yeah. why, um, you know, and, and the puff adders are incredibly well camouflaged, um, yeah. from a, from a sight standpoint. So it'd be interesting to know from a smell standpoint sort of what the dogs are missing on. But I thought, I, you know, when you start getting into the high scent dogs, you, you would think they'd be able to smell a snake like that. Um, and they can't apparently. Um, yeah. So I, I know incredibly interesting. We haven't worked on any reptile projects yet. Um, but I know I've heard, you know, similar things with a lot of reptiles as well as some amphibians. It seems like it, it really varies seasonally and kind of depending on what they're doing behaviorally as well. It seems like it varies quite a bit, but they do seem to have pretty, pretty good olfactory camouflage. And part of it, especially with these venomous snakes is you might wonder, okay, if the detection distance is half a meter, you know, at that point, the dog's already well within striking range and is probably no longer a viable, um, no, no longer a viable option. You know, if the dog can't tell it's a snake from, you know, five, 10, 15 meters away, it's, it's not really a safe proposition anyway. Yeah. I think that, um, uh, the dog's, at least that like I know Kim Beck is using her labs out of Utah um for to finding rattlesnakes and doing a lot of conservation work that way. Um and I know there's a few others, I just don't know off the top of my head. But they uh they're having good success and there's you know, they their dogs people don't realize that rattlesnakes, for example, at least in a defensive strike, not in a not in an offensive strike for prey catching, but for defensive stuff when a dog or human gets nearby, they only strike maximal probably half their body length so even mm-hmm. a three foot rattlesnake um which is a pretty big rattlesnake in the west area you know some of the, the western diamondbacks can get much bigger five or six feet those are rare now um can only strike about half of its length so you're talking about a meter so even if the dog picks up the scent two or three meters out and sort of stays that far away they're still within safety margin yeah yeah definitely um, yeah, uh, yeah. Again, as long as the dog doesn't move closer and the odor is moving in the right directions and all sorts of all sorts of things. <laughs> well, and your dog's not curious and has the appropriate yeah. aversion to that scent and things like that, then um, then you're good. But a lot of times they pick up that scent and want to get figure out what it, what it is, so that's when they get in the danger. Zone. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure people who are doing that must have a lot of questions for the explosives dog handlers on you know, working on getting the dogs to alert at a very safe distance. And, you know, they have the, the snake people have the additional challenge of the snakes being something that can move and is ecologically interesting to a dog. Cause you know, dogs aren't inherently interested in C4. 
Um, but a moving no. snake is going to be interesting. I would but imagine. they are, they are, yeah. Especially if you get into the more um, high, higher prey drive dogs, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure with the conservation dogs, there's probably a lot of training that out. But if you a yeah. lot of the other working dogs that um, maybe are designed for prey catching, you know, I could I could really picture Jack Russell. Um, yeah. You know that that dog is 100 percent want to go in for it. Just, yeah. Want yeah, to go in I mean, and get that snake? I think the fact that we're already because we're if the conservation dog stuff, we're already so focused on re- selecting dogs that aren't as interested in prey animals and doing a lot of training to get like automatic disengagement. That probably helps us out quite a bit because it's not that snakes are the exception, but it's the same rule with snakes as everything else that we run into in the wilderness. Don't interact with it. Um, but I know uh, I, I told this story when uh, I was talking to. Ken Ramirez about the snake avoidance. Um, what I've run into with my older dog, Barley, is, you know, we're all ecologists, so we all get excited whenever we find anything interesting out in the woods. So Barley has now found for us yeah. several snake sheds. Um, and, you know, he found a dead howler monkey and a dead porcupine and, you know, all these other interesting things that we, he would, he didn't necessarily alert to them, but showed interest enough that we came and found them. Uh, and I'm always worried that, you know, I could very easily, uh, if I was careless, accidentally train him to find snakes for me um, in a way that would not be safe or thoughtful for him. Yeah. Yeah. That projection of your excitement on the find is in, yeah, they'll hundred percent pick up on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and- yeah. So we've actually got a rattlesnake shed that I just picked up uh, in California a couple days ago. So we're going to, we're going to go back to the, to the basics on, okay, this is actually a thing that means when you smell this, you recall to me and like, you do not tell yeah. me about it. You don't investigate. This podcast is brought to you by our Patreon group. For as little as $3 a month, you get to ask questions for upcoming episodes, and you also get access to our online student alumni Facebook group. At $10 a month, you can join monthly coaching calls and book club calls. At $25 a month, you can submit video of you and your dog for kind, thoughtful discussion and feedback during each of those calls. And finally, at $50 a month, you get private coaching calls with me at each month. We also have exclusive merch for loyal patrons and occasional workshops, webinars, and other secret goodies for the group. We appreciate your support. So, okay, the last question that I wanted to kind of circle back to, because we we uh, we hinted at but didn't dive into at all, is um, are there any tips or any kind of diagnostic criteria we can look at if we're looking at some symptoms or a suspected bite? How is there any way to tell that it's been a snake bite versus something else, um, or is it better to just load and go get to the get to the veterinary hospital as soon as possible? I think if there's any concern for a snake bite, even if it's not a hundred, if you're not a hundred percent on it, you need to get to the hospital and let the vet do their thing. Um, yeah. Because as we said earlier, it could be a thousand different things. Um, a lot of those things could be completely benign and not cause any progression. Your dog can go on just fine, but there are some things in there that um, the dog could get much worse really rapidly and need need emergent care. So if you have any concern for a snake bite, just get to the vet. When you get to the vet, you know, signs like bleeding, um, lab abnormalities, there's, um, uh, you can get some, some changes in your red blood cells that the vet can see that, that sort of hint at a snake bite, a few other things. Um, but really it's just, if you're out in the field and there's concern for one, there's not, a, there's not a lot of other sort of, um, things I would do. I would just get to the vet. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, even when we're way when we're way out there, then getting a head start is probably even more important. And you always have, you know, as I said, in Guatemala, if we're 10 hours away from the vet, I think we're probably going to know if it's a nothing burger before we get to the vet. And we can always turn around before we pay. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's the same. It's the same with humans. If they're out on the trail, um, if there's concern, get to get to the hospital as soon as you can, um, you know, would think with humans we have a little bit more support, right? We can always use one of our spots or garments or something like that to call emergency services now. Um, I doubt there's many systems that have helicopter rescue for dogs. Yeah, um, probably not. Unless, unless they're potentially military or some other sort of well, very well-connected dog, but I doubt that. Um, and so mm-hmm. it's really just uh, if there's any concern, get, to, get it out as soon as you can. And then, like you said, as you get out, 
and you are spending more and more time getting out, then your dog's going to declare um, itself. Now, keep in mind that snake bites can take several hours to progress. And so mm-hmm. if there's no progression in the first 30 minutes, I wouldn't necessarily stop at 30 minutes and say, oh, my dog's fine now. Um, yeah. Because it could take a couple hours for that swelling to really, really make itself pronounced. Yeah, that's interesting and good to know. I know the only bite that I've ever had to deal with for my animals other than ticks um, is a brown recluse, or that's what we're fairly certain it was because of how the necrosis progressed. And that was a multi-week process, which I know is different, um, but it was really surprising how many times we kind of thought Barley was out of the woods and then it would get worse a couple days later and, you know, he's losing huge What location was that? Uh, this was uh, southern Indiana. Okay. Yeah, so recluse territory. And the only reason I ask is there's so mm-hmm. many um, so many things that look like a recluse bite that people then say, oh, my dog got bit by a recluse. Yeah. Like, well, they don't really exist in Nevada. Um, yeah, right. You know, or they don't, they don't, they don't, you know, you were in Washington when this occurred. It's not really, there's no recluses there. So, um, but there's a lot of sort of similarities of things that can occur. But yeah, same, same sort of thing. The unfortunate thing with the recluses is we don't have a treatment. We just sort of watch and wait and do good mm-hmm. wound care. Yeah. Yeah. It was just a lot of wound care for weeks. Um, and yeah, uh, you know, same as what you're saying. We don't, we say it was probably a recluse bite and that's just going off of what the vet told us about how it progressed. But yeah, we didn't, we didn't see it. I, I would imagine with spiders, even less than snakes, you're actually going to get the chance to know what got your dog. I see so many misdiagnoses in humans of, of, of spider bites. And really it was just a skin infection. Um, yeah. Spider I'm bites in a bunch are, of are incredibly rare. Yeah. I'm in a bunch of entomology Facebook groups, and most of it is just memes, people making fun of everyone on the internet who thinks that everything is a brown recluse. A hundred, a hundred percent, yeah. yeah. It's, it, again, it's it's funny because I'll get consults for in Colorado for humans on, oh, they got bit by a recluse. Well, we don't have them, so probably not. Something probably else not, is yeah. The, probably, yeah. Um, so, but recluse bites certainly happen in the, in the geographic distribution that it occurs. It's just, um, often misdiagnosed. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised actually in Colorado that people, I mean, I feel like I've seen so many gajillions of black widows out there. That would be the thing that I would be, that would be my, my wolf. I'd be crying about all the time in Colorado. Yeah. We definitely get a lot of black widow animations here, um, for humans yeah. and dogs. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I've definitely moved stacks of wood and had a, like, oh, that's not a spider I want to see crawling away from my hand <laughs> sort of experiences. Yeah. I mean, we're now getting more and more. So the brown widow has come over from Europe and is um, still venomous, still can cause some symptoms. Typically, symptoms are way less than a black widow. Huh. Um, but they're actually pushing out the black widow out of urban areas where people live. So the brown widow is much better at um, uh, inner, like co-living with us. Huh. Um, whereas the black widows tend to like more rural areas. And so we're seeing a, a shift there, which is kind of interesting. Um, yeah, I, don't know I actually haven't heard of that. Long term. Yeah, I mean, it, we'll see how it plays out long term, but it, that's sort of um, been something that people have observed. Huh. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, well, okay. Is there anything that normally you like to bring up or anything you wanted to circle back to or clarify, um, on snake bite care, prevention, treatment? No, I think, um, as we were discussing, I think before we started, you know, snake bites, uh, especially when you start getting into different geographical regions, different continents, um, can be nuanced and complex, but at the same time, the treatment is very simple. It is Get out as soon as possible to appropriate medical care, and that exists for humans and dogs and cats and horses and every other thing that needs to be treated in these scenarios um, because, unfortunately, there's just no great pre-hospital care at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think that's just as useful to know and good thing to be clear-eyed about as uh, as we're heading into things and, yeah, preparing yourself and your dog the best you can and knowing where your nearest antivenin is is you know, if that's all we can do, then we better do it well. 
Yeah, I think if you, you know, I, what I try to tell people is know where your nearest hospital is if you're going to go out. Um, but also in the setting of uh, sort of working dogs um, and other, uh, you know, agricultural um, places where people have horses and stuff is know where your nearest emergency vet is. Most vets mm-hmm. that sort of, um, you know, have a nine to five schedule or something like that, most of them don't carry antivenom. So knowing where which veterinary system around you has antivenom, what hours are open, um, things of that nature would be beneficial. Cause I can tell you in the setting of a snake bite or any other emergency, your mind goes a thousand different yeah. ways, right? I'm, uh, I'm trained in emergency medicine and I work in the emergency department. And even then, it's, you know, when chaos ensues, you sort of, um, have to have a very algorithmic system in order to not lose your mind when you're on the field. Even that a lot of that stuff goes out the door. And so, yeah. Um, having, you know, saying, okay, there's the bite, here's the phone number, this is where we're going, um, and alerting them ahead of time is probably beneficial as well so they can prepare for everything. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I wish that, I wish that we had better pre-hospital system care and I wish that we had more veterinary places that were amenable to treating snake bites, but it is a very pretty niche area of of veterinary medicine and even human medicine as well so yeah yeah definitely i mean it's just one more thing that we all need to have in our vehicle binders and have you know ready to go saved in your phone i know when we were in california the big thing you know we had two different emergency hospitals um that were kind of equidistant, but, you know, it was just remembering, okay, if something is to happen, we won't have cell service until we've already had to make a couple turn decisions. So we at least need to know, you know, are we heading down towards Santa Barbara or up towards Lompoc? Uh, and mm-hmm. we'll call as soon as we get cell service, but we need to know which way we're going before we're going to have cell service again. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and one thing, um, some people, a lot of people who have, Working dogs is having, um, they have help and they have vet insurance and stuff like that. And those insurances, you know, I don't want to speak for all of them, but they should cover your vet, your vet bill for a sneak bite because it's considered an emergency. So, yeah. you know, it should fall, it should fall under that category. So if you don't have it, it's a consideration. Um, but you know, it's a, that, that becomes a economical decision, I think for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. I think most of our listeners probably have pet insurance and I would really recommend it for working dog people. I just, I mean, I would be $15,000 in the hole with Barley in the last year and a half alone (laughs) otherwise, but he's also, Barley is uniquely uh, gifted at, you know, needing a TPLO, uh, donkey ACL reconstruction and, uh, and two different tick-borne diseases in seven months. Uh, So... Yeah. Yeah. Mine is not retired and she's just an old, old dog house dog. And so I've not done that. I, I got rid of her insurance, but when yeah. she was out working, we did, we definitely had it cause she was prone to, um, just full bore searching, but would go right through, um, barbed wire and things of that nature. So, you know, yeah. there was a lot of, there was a lot of home surgical repairs occurring. And if I couldn't fix it, then, then we'd go to the, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's my younger dog's favorite move is the the barbed wire, uh, you know, full on. Oh my god! Con- I've seen yeah. I, I, I've seen her take down cow fences just like oh my god. Uh, it's like a wrestling. It's like a wrestling match. Right? It's like right into the ropes, and then you Why? Know, small tears. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the scariest one that Niffler did for me, and this is my younger dog now. He ran into a barbed wire fence with his mouth open and shredded oh, his good. tongue. Um, mm-hmm. and I didn't see it happen. So he comes back to me and we're on a trail run and he comes back into me and there's just blood pouring out of his mouth. You know, mm-hmm. he's like choking on it. And I was, I thought he was going to die in my arms. I, was like, I have no idea what's happened, but this is terrible. And then eventually realized it was, you know, quote unquote, just a, a wound on his tongue. <laughs> yeah, the it stopped bleeding the in 10 minutes. He was fine. Didn't yeah. even go. Like I called the vet and they were like, don't bother bringing him in the tongue stuff. It gets better in no time. It's like, okay. <laughs> go from thinking he's going to die to the vet telling me not to bring him in in about 10 minutes. Yeah. Well, I I do want to pitch if anybody wants to learn more about snake bites and snake bite care, including vet um, management. Um, We are doing the Denver Venom Conference on September 22nd. 
um, in Ooh, Denver. Excellent. Um, and so we'll be talking about snakes, snake ecology, venom variation, human management, and veterinary management of snake bites at that time. There's an in-person. We're doing it at the zoo where people will get behind-the-scenes cool. access to the zoo. Um, and then there's also a virtual option. So if people can't make it to Denver um, that day or if they want to get the recorded lectures later, um, they can do that as well. And so you can go to snakebitefoundation.org and see um, and click on the Denver Venom Conference weekend. Um, it's a one-day event, but we're doing a, we're doing a herping tour the weekend after. So we're taking some people out to find snakes at that point. Um, uh, wow. This looks so cool. So, I am not going to be able to be in Denver for it, but I'm almost certainly going to be signing up for that virtual option. Yeah. I'm so glad you've got that. Um, yeah, and we do. So this group of lectures, um, we vary lectures, but, you know, we. Oh, my God, this um, is so affordable. <laughs> yes. Wow. We keep it. Yeah. We keep it to. We keep it to not be incredibly expensive for people because we mm -hmm. want people to learn. Um, and, you know, the people, the lectures we have are the, the, the movers and shakers of like snake bites, snakes, right? These are, these are world-class experts in their field. So yeah. that we're not having, to, you know, they're all, they're all basing their lectures off of evidence. And if anybody needs, um, they're a paramedic or they're an EMT a nurse, a physician, and they need continued education credits, that's available. If you're a vet tech or a vet and you need race um, credits for ongoing continuing education, we have race credits for everybody. And if anybody's working towards their um, FOM credits or their wilderness medicine credits, we have wilderness medicine credits as well. Ooh, and so that's good to know. I'm it, short on CDUs just, for wilderness medicine. So, <laughs> yeah. So if you need FOM credits, we have FOM credits. Uh -huh. Um, and they're, that is one of the few credits there's no actual charge for. we just get, we just have FOM cool. credits. So excellent. If people need them, please sign up. Um, Hopefully this gets out before September 22nd. So I was just tickets, thinking I'm going to send this over to my editor and we'll get this out as soon as possible then to make sure people have time beforehand. It might be coming out just a couple days or a week beforehand, but that should still give people time to sign up online. And for anyone who's driving right yeah. now, it's 65 to 80 bucks. Um, so really pretty affordable for a full yeah, day's worth of learning. The in-person for the $80 section will be um, we have to close that september 10th um okay. just for food we got to order the food and all that totally. stuff for the day but if um if the if it's after september 10th um sign up for a virtual and you guys can um be able to re review the videos whenever you want um yeah which will be nice that's, yeah that's amazing um i'm really excited about that so yeah we'll uh we'll shuffle around some things in our publishing uh schedule to get this out then so yeah no worries all right. Well, Nick, thank you so much. I've learned quite a bit and uh, I don't know if I feel any better about being out in snake country with my dogs, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, I guess knowing yeah. what is not and, helpful is still good. <laughs> yeah. An hour of saying there's nothing we can do kind of is the gist, <laughs> but um, other yeah. than get to care. Uh, but yeah, the other, the other stuff is, um, you know, there's a lot of mis misconceptions out there on snake bite management and, so we try to just educate as best we can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's all we can do. And that's what we're here for. And, you know, it doesn't do anyone any good to tell them that, you know, this, this, and this is going to, is going to help if it's not going to help that, you know, false sense of security isn't useful either. So, um, well, Nick, if people are interested in, uh, staying up to date on, uh, your movements, uh, other upcoming conferences or learning, um, options, where can people find you? Um, they can find me, um, at www.snakebitefoundation.org. That's just the snake bite foundation. Um, you know, we do a lot of care in West Africa, um, but we also try to, we do blogs and things like that for uh -huh. ongoing education for both, both humans and animals. So we have a few blogs on, for example, the vaccine not working and Benadryl not working and things like that. Um, uh, but we are a group of conservationists who um, are with, work with herpetologists, physicians, a bunch of other different sort of people to, to improve snake bite care in West Africa. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's really great. If anybody has questions, um, they can click that link as well um, on there to contact us. And we, 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 uh, we respond to emails regularly. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely found you all really helpful. And um, we'll also link in the show notes that uh, I think it's national veterinary snake bite support group or something like that, that um, again, I've found. Nas- so there's two groups. Uh-huh. There's the national veterinary snake bite support and there's national snake bite support. Yeah. For which I'm a part of both. Um, I think either group is, is quite good. Um, I think the national snake bite support is a more active group. Um, mm-hmm. but either one is, is a, is a good group for learning and for education on snake bites for humans and dogs. This national snake bite support does human and dogs. The national veterinary snake bite support does, um, just animals. Just animals. Yeah. yeah. I know I've learned a lot from just kind of lurking in that group and picking up things. So, yeah, it's a good group to have. I think, um, you know, the National Snake by Support, I think we have eight vets now who sort of answer questions, and they're mm-hmm. all, they all work at places they treat a lot of snake bites, so that's very helpful. Uh, you know, it's where I've learned as being a human physician, um, human doctor, a lot from my, my veterinary colleagues, um, both on the nuances, but also the similarities that we get yeah. from the same stuff. Yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of similarities and yeah, then a couple little things that are different or maybe big things, but all right. Well, for everyone at home, I hope that you learned a lot and you're feeling inspired to um, maybe look up your closest emergency vet and make sure you've got that saved in your phone and then go outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set. We'll be back next week with uh, something else on dog safety uh, or other other topics. I'm not quite sure now that we're shuffling our publication order. As always, you can find our online course, our Patreon learning group, bento boxes, tote bags, dog water bowls, whatever it is that you need, you can get it with um, one of our dog's faces on it. All of that is over at canineconservationists.org. Bye.